Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is Jesus' answer to evil and earth's suffering. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we are so grateful and thankful that you have pulled us out of the world. You've set us apart for your good purpose. You've given us a hope and a future. And Lord, you have put a hunger and a desire to be in your word, studying and learning and growing and preparing for the things that are coming upon the world. And Lord, we know that we live in an evil world. We see it all around us. We see violence everywhere. And Lord, it's almost as though we've become numb to it. And so we pray that you will guide our hearts tonight as we look into this topic, that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind to understand, and Lord, you will help us to apply your word to our lives. We want to make our election sure, and so we give our hearts to you, and we ask that the angels would be here to minister to us, and Lord, help us to give all of our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look at this planet from outer space and you see the green and the blue and the white, it looks so beautiful. It looks so peaceful. But when you see the realities of everyday life on this planet, we know that the opposite is true, don't we? There are many tears that flow every day from those whose hearts have been broken by tragedies like death and disease and abuse and war and the pain that many endure make this planet anything but peaceful. When we look at the challenges of our world, the natural tendency is to say, who's responsible for this? There are some people that want to blame God for all of the tragedies of the world. They call Him a tyrant. There are some people who even refuse to believe in God because they say, look at all of this never-ending pain and sorrow and suffering. How can there even be a God? The question through the ages has always been, if God is so good, then why is there so much evil in this world? I think that's a good question. I think that's a a fair question, and I hope that it's a question that we can answer tonight. Some people come to the conclusion that God must hate them. They have all of these difficulties, all of these problems. They just seem to go from one tragedy to the next, to the next, to the next. And they say, why is God doing this to me? And then there are other people that say, you know, I have been so bad. I have made so many mistakes. How can God even love me? How can God even care about me? And you know, there may be some of you here tonight that are in that state of mind. But tonight, I want to redirect your mind to a very precious promise that Jesus gave us in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. 
He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The promise that Jesus gives to us tonight is that He loves us with an everlasting love. And what that means is that His love for you is not based on what you do. It's not based on how good you are or how bad you are. God's love for you is based on His goodness. It's based on His character. And His love is trying to draw us into a relationship with Him. And the reality is is that God accepts you right where you at. God accepts the heroin addict. God accepts the drug addict, the alcoholic, the wife abuser. He accepts all of us just the way we are. But God loves us so much, He's unwilling to leave us that way. He wants to transform your life. He wants to come in and rule and reign as the King of your heart and transform you more and more into the image of His Son. And so tonight, we are going to pull back the curtain of the spiritual world and we are going to see how and when evil came to this planet and why it still continues today. This is going to be what I hope is a very enlightening presentation as we look at how all of this happened and how we got to where we are today and where we are heading. Prophecy reveals a struggle between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. There are good angels, but there are also bad angels. But the question is, has evil always existed? Or did it have a beginning? And the Bible, I think, is going to answer that question for us tonight. Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, that there was war in heaven. You get this idea that there's this combat that erupted in paradise. That there are angel armies on each side and there is this dramatic showdown. And we get that from some of the symbology that we see in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at it. It says starting in verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Try to wrap your mind around that. As we hear it said that there was war in heaven. How could there possibly be war in paradise? You get this idea that you have Christ and Satan battling each other. You have these angels with swords that are fighting each other. How can this be? And it brings up some very perplexing questions. And that is, why was there war in heaven? And where did this dragon come from? And fortunately for us, 
the Bible gives us enough clues that I think we can figure it out. The first thing that I want to point out to you is if you go back to the original manuscript, the book of Revelation was written in Greek. And if you go back and you look at the the original manuscript, the word that was used in Greek, polemos, is the word that was translated into English, war. And that word in Greek, polemos, is where we get our English word, polemics. And it's very interesting what the definition is of polemics is. Listen to this. It is the art of argumentation or controversy. It is a term that is often used in connection with debates. And so you might say that this war in heaven, rather than being a battle with swords and clubs and that uh, soldiers, that kind of thing, it's more like a political campaign. Lucifer, this angel in heaven, was running a political campaign against God. He was attacking God's character. Have we seen anything like that in our world today? Absolutely, right? A lot of the times we see these pictures of angels falling from heaven with swords in their hand, right? But that's not the picture that we get from the Bible. According to the word that is translated into English, war, this was more of an argument, more of an ideological battle. It was more of a political campaign. And here's another thing, a very interesting definition of polemics when you use it in a religious sense. Listen to this definition. The practice of theological controversy to refute errors of doctrine. That was the issue in heaven. There was a dispute over God's law and what God was doing to run the universe. And we need to figure out where this all started from. And we don't have a lot of details about who and how it started. In fact, I'll tell you, the Bible doesn't directly tell us that Lucifer started this battle, but it gives us some clues that we can look at to see and get a pretty good idea of how this whole thing started. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, that's going to be page 988 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 28. And what I want to point out to you here is the Bible shows us, I think, what was going on in the mind of Lucifer. What was he thinking? Now I want you to look with me, Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'm going to start in verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I want to point out to you here that Ezekiel is saying that the Lord said to him, he calls himself the Son of Man, 
He says, take up a lamentation. Take up a lament. Take up a weeping for the king of Tyre. Now, when we look at that, we say, well, this is talking about a person. This is talking about a real, literal king in a real, literal city called Tyre. And you can go into the Old Testament and you can read about the people of Tyre that are there. And so this is a person that's being spoken of, isn't it? And he wants Ezekiel to weep for this king. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 12. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And so here we get this idea that this king of Tyre was a pretty industrious individual. He was certainly filled with wisdom because it tells us that. He was probably a very powerful king. And it also says that he was a handsome man. Now, I want to point out to you that this is talking about a specific person, but it's also, we're going to find out, is talking about somebody else. And so there's a dual application here. And I want to tell you why. Because Satan is a deceiver. The Bible tells us that, doesn't it? You never see him out in the open. He's always working behind the scenes. He's always working through human instrumentalities. And so what we see here is that even though he's taking up this lament for this human king, this king is really a type of Satan. And we know that because look at the next verse. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now there's no possible way that a king of Tyre living in the days of Ezekiel could have been in Eden. In fact, the Bible only tells us of four beings who were in Eden. Adam and Eve, God, and the serpent. So who is this talking about that was in the garden of God? It goes on to say, Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Listen to this. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you in other words you were a cherub this is a type of angel there are various types that the bible describes seraphs and and cherubs and principalities and powers and all of this he's a covering cherub and so as a covering cherub he was over all of the other angels and it says here that I established you. I created you. I put you in that position. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones and you were perfect in all of your ways from the day you were created. I created you. 
I established you. I put you on the mountain of God. In various places of the Bible, God is described as a light, as wrapping Himself in light. He is described as a consuming fire. And here we see this angel walking in the midst of the fire. He was the angel that was closest to God. And then it says... You were perfect, verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until. Until iniquity was found in you. So the question is, did God create the devil? And the answer is, from what we just read, no, He didn't create the devil. He created a perfect angel named Lucifer. And we have this picture of Lucifer being in the very presence of God. If anybody should know the love of God, the character of God, the compassion, the mercy of God, it should be Him, right? He was closest to God. But then something happened to this wonderful angelic being. And I want you to notice in verse 17, it tells us what happened. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Notice here the the issue. There came a time when this angel began to be focused on his own splendor, mesmerized by his own beauty. And his pride is coming up and it leads him into sin. Friends, how could this happen in a perfect universe? I'm going to suggest to you that there's only one way. Only one way. Because love never forces. Love never coerces. It must come voluntarily from the heart. And if you take away the opportunity to love, you take away happiness. And since God desired ultimate happiness for His creatures, He gave them the power of choice. He wanted all of His creatures to love Him, but He didn't want to force any of them. And so He gave all of His angels the power to choose. But that's a very dangerous thing. Because if you give the power to choose, then you are giving someone the power to decide that they do love you, or you're giving them the power to choose not to love you. God did not want robots. He did not want puppets. God wanted real, intelligent beings who could experience love and joy And the only way that that could happen is to give them the power of choice. And Isaiah the prophet gives us another insight into this angel Lucifer 
who began to rebel against God and became this fallen angel. Notice what Isaiah says in 14, starting in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. And if you do a study in your Bible, you discover that the farthest sides of the north is the very throne of God. He says, I'm going to sit on that throne. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you see the focus there? Do you see the intents of his heart? The thoughts that he has? Lucifer desired a higher position. He was the highest created being there is. He was the closest to God and yet he still desired something more. He desired an exalted throne, rulership and dominance. What he wanted was worship. He wanted to be worshipped just like God. And that's what started it all. And that's how this angel began his tragic fall. A fall that would pull one-third of the angels along with him. By contrast to that, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Love is the foundation of God's government. God never forces. God operates only on free will, only on choice. We must choose Him. He is a perfect gentleman. Remember the last two nights we have looked at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. And He's not going to force His way in. He's not going to coerce anyone. He's not going to demand it. He is going to stand there and He is going to wait for you to invite Him into His heart. Friends, you can never successfully force someone to love you. Love was all around Lucifer. And yet he turned away from love. And finally getting himself further and further and further away from God, Lucifer began to see God as a rival. As he is coming to this place, his mind is twisting to the point where he sees God as the enemy. The Bible describes the results of this in Ezekiel 28, verse 6. You have set your heart as the heart of a God. Lucifer began to think of himself as an equal with God or even superior to God. And he starts thinking, why should God have all of the power and authority? And he begins to think of himself as being equally qualified to run the universe. I want you to try to imagine for a moment the disturbance that this must have made in heaven. Imagine a place where jealousy and slander and malice don't exist. 
They had never existed. And it never occurred to anyone to question the love of God and the wisdom of God and the justice of God. And suddenly you have this brilliant angel, this cherub who was near the throne of God, and he starts making very subtle remarks. Not openly challenging God, but just planting doubt in the minds of the angels. He questions, why does God get all the glory? Why do we have to keep all of His commandments? Why are we being ruled by Him when we should be able to rule ourselves? And He suggests that maybe there's an alternative. Maybe there's something better. There's a better way to run the universe. And carefully and artfully and deceitfully He begins to share His lies with the angels claiming that God is unfair. That God is unjust in His administration. In His divine government. And so the question is, how would God face Lucifer's challenge? Now, you may be like me. There was a time when I said, Well, if God knew that Lucifer was going to be the one to choose not to love him and and Lucifer was going to bring all this evil in the world, why didn't God just nip it in the bud? Why didn't He just take him out right from the beginning? Have you ever thought that? Absolutely. Because if he was the origin of evil... If Lucifer was the first to cut himself off from God, then why not just end it before it gets started? Why not eliminate evil before it spreads to the other worlds? I want you to think about that for a moment though. I want you to imagine what would have happened if God would have done that. Let me try to give you an example of this. I want you to imagine that tonight some person comes on national television and accuses the President of the United States of illegal activities. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to be saying, yeah, he probably is. And then there might be other people who would say, no, I don't think so. I know him personally. He's a good guy. I don't think he'd do that. And then there might be others who would say, you know, I just don't know. I don't know who to believe. But imagine this. Imagine if after making this accusation a couple of days later that this individual mysteriously ends up dying of natural causes with a hole in their head. What do you think the people would think? Hmm. Maybe there was something to that accusation. Maybe the president is up to illegal activities. And the same thing would be true with the angels. If God just made Satan disappear, or he mysteriously ended up dead, there may be some angels that would say, 
Wow, that's strange. Is that a coincidence? He was calling God out and now he's dead. Did God do that? And guess what? The whole problem would just rise up again, wouldn't it? And so the question that really comes out of this is, is God just? Is God really doing what is best for us? And to destroy the opposition wouldn't answer that challenge. And so God chooses a wiser course. In His sovereignty, He decides that He is going to allow sin in the universe for a time. He needs to allow it to go on long enough to fully demonstrate whether rebellion against God can bring joy and peace and happiness or not. And so the universe, including each and every one of us, has to see for ourselves We have to decide for ourselves, is God just? Is God's way right? Or is Lucifer's? And that's the only way that the problem can be solved. Love depends on free choice. Listen to this. Love depends on choice, but you will not choose to love someone that you can't trust. Am I right? You will choose not to love someone if you can't trust them. And so we've got this controversy going on. But there's one thing for certain. Lucifer had gotten himself to the point where God says you can no longer live here with me. God is perfect and holy and righteous and I cannot have that in my presence. And so Revelation 12 verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. But let me ask you a question. How did planet earth become involved in this cosmic conflict? The question is, was Satan just dumped onto this earth and God said, okay, you deal with him? Or was it something else? Was there some way, somehow, that the inhabitants of this earth opened the door and let him in? The first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells us that when God created this world that it was good. You go back to Genesis and you see that he created the first day and he says it was good. Second day it was good. Third day it was good. He gets to the sixth day. He creates man and he says, oh, this is very good. Right? Because he created man and he also gave them freedom of choice. And by the way, they also were perfect when he created them. Capable of giving and receiving love. And God gave them the opportunity to prove whether they would be loyal to Him or to someone else. 
And so God created two trees other than that were different than the rest of the trees. And one was called the tree of life and one was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of the tree of life, He said, I want you to live forever. Eat from that tree. Keep on eating from that tree. God intended that they would live forever. But then He gave them the choice. There was a test to see if they would love God implicitly, if they would trust God. And God says, if you eat of that tree, on the day that you do, you will surely die. And by not eating from the tree, they will prove that they trust God. And if they do eat from the tree, then they are going to place themselves under the authority of someone else. When Eve wandered over to that forbidden tree, Satan was there disguised as the serpent and he had the opportunity to once again continue his lies, continue his deception. You see, when he was thrown out of heaven, he didn't change at all. It didn't correct his character. God had said that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would surely die. But Satan said in Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was essentially saying to her, you will have greater happiness if you follow me. God is restricting your freedom. God knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like Him and He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that for you. And tragically, Eve and her husband Adam accepted the lie. After Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, they were filled with guilt and anxiety. And when Jesus came to talk and walk with them, They ran and hid themselves from Him. And you know, friends, we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? Today, we can see the results of the choices that they made all around us. Satan's alternative is not anything like what the serpent advertised in Eden. We live on a planet in rebellion. On a planet full of decay and disease and death. None. How much did I say? None of which is God's fault. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. The Bible tells us that, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is infectious. Sin is a terrible disease that once it comes in, it spreads like cancer. And the only hope that we have is to turn our hearts back to God. He has a solution for your life if we can trust Him, if we can love Him. 
Sin produces alienation from God. It separates us from God. And sin also separates us from each other. The seeds of the first war were planted in the hearts of our first parents when they sinned. And the reason that there is abuse in the home, the reason that there is animosity in the world, the reason that there is violence the way it is, is because we're infected with sin. And when humans are alienated from God, they become alienated from each other. Sin produces anxiety. It produces fear. produces suffering and death. And sin is choosing Satan's form of government rather than God's. And that form of government produces sickness, heartache, disease, and death. I like this cartoon here. This young man is sitting here on the bench and he says to Jesus, so why do you allow things like famine, war, suffering, disease, crime, homelessness, despair, all of these tragedies in the world, why do you allow them to exist? And I love what Jesus says here. He says, that's a great question. I was just about to ask you the same thing. The question is, is God to blame? Now many Many people want to blame God. You have a natural disaster, and what does the insurance company say? It was an act of God, right? Friends, have the things on earth happened because of God or because of us? God is not to blame, God has the solution. And so this brings us to a very important question. Who's responsible then? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told a parable in response, essentially, to His disciples asking the very same question. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. That's going to be page 1127 of your seminar Bible. Matthew 13. And I want you to notice what the Bible says, what Jesus says, starting in verse 24. It says, Another parable He put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. I want you to notice here this story, what Jesus is saying. He's looking at it agriculturally. And he says that there's this man who goes out and sows good seed. 
And he says, but then he has an enemy that comes in behind him and sows tares. Now, tares are a weed. We know that, right? Look at this picture. We look at that field of wheat and and then all of a sudden, boom, we can spot the weed a mile away, can't we? But a tear is no ordinary weed. You see, a tear, when it first begins to grow, looks exactly like the wheat plant. They look identical. And you can't tell the difference between them until it comes to the time when the grain comes forth in the head. And then the weed can't do that. And then all of a sudden these workers notice, hey, didn't you sow good seed? Where did all the weeds come from? And he says an enemy has done this. You keep reading in that chapter and later on you'll see that the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Him the meaning of that parable. And He said that the sower was God. And the field was the world. And the good seed was the truth of God. And an enemy came and sowed lies. It's a powerful message, and in that, Jesus is explaining the paradox of how evil came into the world. Notice, too, he says, when they ask him, should we go and tear up the weeds? He says, uh-uh, don't do that. You tear up the weeds, you're also going to pull up the wheat along with it, right? Right? He says the only thing you can do is let them grow up together and then at the end of the age, at the coming of Jesus, He will separate the good from the bad. You see that? Look at verse 28 again. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Friends, this is why we've taken this theme on for our series. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it's not in the Bible, if it's against the Scriptures, if it's lies, it's not for me. I'm throwing it out. So when we are perplexed and we ask why there are tragic weeds in the world, weeds of sickness, weeds of heartache, weeds of atrocities, weeds of brokenness, weeds of disease and death, we find the answer of how these things came about. An enemy has done this. You see, friends, God planted good seed. He didn't sow sickness. He didn't sow suffering and death. An enemy of God and man has came in with deception and lies and is sowing seeds of destruction in the good that God created. Jesus, through His life, through His love, through His sacrifice, exposes Satan as the real cause of earth's evil and suffering. The Bible consistently identifies him as the enemy, as Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the devil. He is the one who rebelled against God and unleashed this whole sin problem. An angel who rebelled against God and gained for himself all of these titles. You know, 
In Scripture, the devil is not described as some fairy tale flying around in red leotards with a pitchfork. He is a very real being and he causes very real tragedies and he is a very clever deceiver. He deceived one-third of the angels and was cast out of heaven with them. And they came and they knocked on the door of this planet. And God wanted the door to be closed forever. He wanted them to choose Him, trust Him, follow Him, rather than the deceptions of the devil. And when Satan came knocking, Eve opened the door. Satan essentially said to Eve, God is unjust. He essentially said to her, God is restricting your happiness. You will be much happier if you listen to me. Just eat the fruit. She opened the door and Adam followed her lead. And as a result, sin and sickness and heartache and and death came into this world. The earth was caught in the crossfire because the deceiver tricked our first parents into rebellion and it became a world in rebellion. But you say, well then why doesn't God do something? Right there in the Garden of Eden, When Adam and Eve sinned, right there, God promised them a deliverer. He came to them in the garden and they hid from Him. But when He finally connected with them and started talking with them, He promised them a way out. He didn't come to punish them. He didn't come to kill them that very day. He came to give them hope. He promised that He was going to do away with sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus was talking to Satan. And He said, I will put enmity, I'm going to put war, I'm going to put hatred between you and the woman. He was specifically talking to Eve, but He was also symbolically speaking. And if you know Bible prophecy, you know that a woman is the symbol of God's church. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and My people. Between your seed and her seed. And He, that is My Messiah, My Redeemer, My Savior, He shall bruise your head. He's going to give you a death blow, but you're going to bruise His heel. I want you to imagine that you're walking along in the countryside and all of a sudden you step on a rattlesnake and it grabs a hold of your heel. And you get that up and you go, whoa, and you start crushing that snake. And you kill that snake. But He gave you a wound too, didn't He? In the process of trying to kill Jesus, Satan bruised his heel. He thought he killed him, but death couldn't hold him. It was a light and momentary affliction that was building up for him an eternal weight of glory. 
But when he did, he nailed Satan in the coffin. He proved that he was a murderer from the beginning and the universe could see it. He would rise victoriously as our Redeemer, Savior, Lord, and King. And He promises you and me that we too can have the victory. We can come out of the grave. We can live eternally with Him if we will put our trust in Him. If we will give our love and affection to Him. So how would God answer Satan's challenge? How would love stand out in contrast to selfishness? Christ would come and He would be nailed to a cross. He would be hanging between heaven and earth and He would demonstrate the supreme love of God. In the death of Christ, Satan was given a death blow. We can see principalities and powers and wickedness fall because He secured our freedom. The cross reveals the enormous love of God. And Jesus cried out in Jeremiah 31, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God would come to this world in rebellion. He would come as a baby born of a virgin. He would face Satan's challenge head on. So why doesn't God do something if He loves us? I tell you, He has. He has. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. And you and I have done the same thing. We're just as guilty as they are. And as we read in the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And still yet, God did not destroy this world. He did not push it out into the farthest parts of space. Heaven responded to Satan's challenge with love. Heaven responded to Satan's questions with love. His arguments with love. Heaven revealed that love has a plan for you and me. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, "...and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God." And so what is this mystery? What is this mystery of the ages? How could God love us so much? That's the mystery. How could He? Lucifer challenged God's government in heaven. He accused God of being unfair. He said that it was impossible for angels or men to keep God's commandments. And the mystery of the ages is that God loves you. That He will go to the ends of the earth for you. That there is nothing that He won't do. There's no depth that He won't go to save you. There's no valley so deep. There's no pit so dark that He can't reach down into it and pull you out. There's no place that you can wander that you can get away from God. There's no place that you can run so far that you can escape His love. Satan is a liar. 
He says God doesn't love you. He says you are worthless. But then Jesus says, but look at the nails in my hands. Look at the crown of thorns on my head. Satan says God doesn't love you and and Jesus says I went all the way to the grave for you. And as He's hanging on that cross, He cries out, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was revealed as a murderer. And all of the universe saw it. And then the next day, on the Sabbath, He slept a peaceful sleep in the grave. And then the next day, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, hallelujah! The angels came down and rolled away the stone and revealed that He was raised from the dead. He is risen! Jesus was sent to this earth to show us the love of God. And we say, why doesn't God do something? Friends, He did. But that's not all. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we, yet was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Why doesn't God do something? He is doing something. Not only did He die for you and take your penalty upon Himself, but He is the risen Lord. He has ascended into heaven and He is ministering there, interceding on your behalf. Right now, grace is available. Right now, whatever your situation, God loves you. He wants to do something in your heart, something in your life right now. He wants to forgive you. He wants to change you. He wants to get you away from that carnal heart. And He wants you to walk in the Spirit. But there's more. There's more. He's still not done. Because one day, wickedness is going to be put to an end. One day, God is going to destroy Satan forever. One day, Satan won't be able to tempt anyone anymore. And he will be gone forever. The garden promise will be fulfilled. Jesus is going to totally crush and stamp out Satan and all of evil forever. And notice how Revelation 20 verse 10 says it. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The prophet Ezekiel adds to that, Therefore I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you. God is going to destroy Satan and evil. And we see here that he literally starts a fire within him and consumes him. It says, And I turned you to ashes upon the earth. You have become a horror and you shall be no more forever. One day Satan is going to be consumed. He's going to be turned to ashes. 
He will be no more. One day the universe is going to be clean. Jesus and His people are going to reign the universe together. The Bible, this ancient book that has survived the test of time, tells us that a time is coming when only peace and love are going to remain. Sin, sorrow, suffering, heartache are going to be no more. God is love and His way is best and one day He will prevail. And so friends, I ask you, do you want to place yourself on His side? Do you want to ask Him to show you what the devil is doing in this world and have Him prepare you for the coming of Jesus? Do you want Him to show you the deceptions that are going on in this world right now and how you can avoid them? Because the Bible says the whole world wonders after the beast. Friends, we don't want to be a part of that. And so I want to encourage you Keep coming. We're going to keep diving into Scripture. We're going to keep looking at prophecy. And we're going to see what the devil has been doing for thousands of years and what he's doing today. You are going to find in these studies a beautiful picture of God. So much in contrast with the ugly, empty system of the devil and what he offers. Satan rebelled in heaven and he came to this earth and he's following the same tactics today. He leads us to rebel against God on some point. Not all, but on just one. You see, he wants to get you in a ditch. And he doesn't care if it's that ditch or that ditch or that ditch. He wants you to disobey God. But it's not too late. It's never too early to choose God's way. Right now, we can make that commitment that we are going to follow the truth wherever He leads. Is that your commitment? I want to close tonight with a story about a guy by the name of Justin. Justin was just two weeks away from being initiated into the Buddhist faith. Justin had grown up in a Christian home, but he felt untouched by his religious upbringing. The Bible was never opened in his home. And so he was always searching for something. He was searching for something better. And now he thought he had found it in the Buddhist faith And then one day, he got an invitation in the mail. It was an invitation to a Bible study just like this one. And he looked at that invitation and he asked himself, could it be that the Bible answers my questions? Could it be that the Bible can tell me the future? And so Justin went to that Bible study. And on that first night, he was fascinated. He could hardly believe that the Scriptures were so insightful. And the next night, and the next, and the next, his wife, and his mother, and his children also came. 
And it just seemed to him like light was flashing in to the darkness of his mind for the first time. And he realized for the first time that a lot of the things that people teach in the religious world were false. Perhaps you too feel empty tonight. Perhaps you have been like Justin. You've gone from one religion to another, from one church to another, but your soul is not at home. But now tonight you understand this great controversy that is going on and you desire to take your stand with Jesus. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to be on the Lord's side? Do you want to say, yes, Lord, I want to go by the Bible. I don't want to go by tradition. I don't want to go by the doctrines of men. I want to go by the commandments of God. I want to see a thus saith the Lord. And I want to follow you no matter what the cost. Is that your desire? If it is, let me see your hands tonight. I want to ask you, was this presentation presented clearly to you? Do you accept that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and do you want Him to be your personal Savior? Do you believe that He has a plan for your life? Do you accept the Bible truth that was presented tonight? And is it your decision by grace to believe and to follow Him? If it is, let's pray. Oh, loving Father, we've seen some powerful truths tonight. We've had our eyes open to the fact that You're not responsible for all of the tragedy in our world, but we have an enemy. And Lord, He's trying to do everything that He can to destroy us. He's trying to do everything that He can to pull us away. He's trying to do everything He can to deceive us into disobeying You. And Lord, we don't want to fall for His trickery. And so we're praying and asking that You will do a mighty powerful work in our lives. Open up the Scriptures to us. Reveal the truth. And when You do, give us the strength and the courage to follow it. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.